Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Dowrick. Hello, Ben. G'day, Gabe. And for two weeks in a row, a big welcome back to our guest co-host, Sam Editor, Sam Haywood. Howdy, Sam. G'day, Ben. G'day, Gabe. How you going? Pretty good. Ready to rock this one out, because every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we're reviewing two twin movies that are biographies about the legendary American Old West lawman, Wyatt Earp. It's Tombstone versus Wyatt Earp. Let the shooting at noon begin. So, guys, as usual, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 25th of December, 1993, just in time for Christmas, Tombstone was released. And here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. A successful lawman's plans to retire anonymously in Tombstone, Arizona, are disrupted by the kind of outlaws he was famous for eliminating. All right, Sam, let's start with you. Did you originally catch Tombstone when it was released at the cinema? And what was that experience like? Uh, No, I didn't. So I didn't have that experience, I'm afraid. I wish I did, but um, I don't think I would have appreciated it as much as I do today. How about you, Gabe? Where did you first catch it? Uh, in 1993, I was between 9 and 11 years old, so I was probably too young to see this movie at the pictures. Yeah, there was only one Western, and um, it was two words, Young Guns. It's true. <laughs> what year was Young Guns? Uh, that would have been late 80s, I think. Young Guns 2 was early 90s. How, how old are you, Sam? You wouldn't have seen them at the movies, would you? Oh, no, not at the movies, but a million times on VHS, and that'll come up every time I get to guest host on this podcast. (laughs) Although I did see Beverly Hills Cop 2 at the cinema, and I was way too young to see that. So um, those were the days when we saw very inappropriate films way too young. (laughs) It was the 80s and the 90s. Yeah, I caught Bits of Tombstone on TV over about 20 years and never saw the whole film. Until this podcast, believe it or not. What? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> sacrilegious. And there's a reason for this. And I'm now going to be the flint to your fire. Ugh. It's because I'm not a huge fan of Westerns. Ugh. Oh, yeah. Okay. Shots fired. So we'll get into that. So that my first experience like watching. Westerns? Do you not like Westerns, Ben? I just don't really get into them. I don't dislike them. I just don't find them as engaging as some other genres. Like this is no sudden impact. What? Okay, I mean, <laughs> but you can like them both. I know. It's, it's unmutually exclusive. Uh, I just don't like Westerns as much. Uh, I really like, for example, The Assassination of Jesse James and I love Unforgiven. So there are certain really high-caliber Westerns I like, but we'll get to this in the review. Um, what about Fistful of Dollars and For a Few Dollars More and Once Upon a Time in the West and... Good, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, watched them, watched them all once, enjoyed them, but never, never gone back. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Oh my goodness. Anywho, six months later, on the twenty fourth of June, nineteen ninety four, Wyatt Earp was released. Here's the synopsis from IMDb: The story of Wyatt Earp as he interacts and battles other famous figures of the Wild West era. Uh, okay, pretty fair to say that's probably not the original tagline or synopsis that was used when the film was made. But anyway. Another IMDb classic. I, when did you first watch Wyatt Earp? I feel like that uh, IMDb synopsis also promises a very different movie. Uh, like, 
there, if it wasn't like White Earp beyond Thunderdome, there was not enough battling. If that's what you're gonna, if that's what you're gonna sell it as. Yeah, more typhoid and Romanson. Uh, yeah, and and wigs. <laughs> the the first time you see. Oh, we'll, we'll get to that. Save it for the review. Look, it's not a review. Just to mention that you know I'm attracted to movies uh, where the lead actors wear wigs. Uh, this ticks a lot of boxes for me. <laughs> uh, uh, although although I wasn't when I was 11 years old. <laughs> so I did not see this at the pictures. I saw this. I, I actually probably saw this on VHS in like the uh, mid to late 90s, um, which, you know, for a movie that's trying to be like epic in scope, probably bored young 12-year-old me. <laughs> Sam, how about you? When and how did you first watch White Earp? Uh, I, 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 I thought I saw it, but having rewatched it, either I was um, went through some amnesia, or I, it was the first time I saw it last night. Let's dig into this, Sam. Did you used to watch it at your uncle's house? <laughs> yeah, I blocked it out because I used to watch it at my uncle Frank's house. <laughs> Yep. Thanks for bringing up that painful memory, Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> so before we jump into a review and comparison of these twin movies, let's find out how we got here with a bit of a shallow dive into the Hollywood history behind these two flicks. So there are a few stories to tell later on in relation to the actual production, but in terms of these two films getting up, the first one, Tombstone, was actually written by Kevin... I think it's pronounced Jaray or Jair. And he was uh, inspired to tell a sprawling epic involving many, many characters, including White Earp's brothers and so on. And that seemed to develop entirely separately from White Earp to Kevin, uh, what's his name? Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner. I'm thinking of Kevin Reynolds, the director behind those Robin Hood movies. Uh, Anywho, the interesting thing, though, is that apparently Kevin Costner was actually going to be in this film and he didn't quite gel with the director, so he went off and did his own White Earp and that was actually going to be a six-part TV series. And essentially, once that film was underway, he basically tried to have all of the casting decisions kind of nullified for the Tombstone movie by saying to the studio, because at this time he had a lot of clout, look, my film's the only wider film, therefore I don't want any casting happening with any actors you're friendly with. You've just got to focus on this being the one and only wider movie. So both films take off. They're both filming in the same area in Arizona. and But because Tombstone was filming six months earlier, they actually got their cast together, fortunately, despite bit of a blackballing going on there by Kevin Costner. But then what they did was they bought up all the local authentic costumes in the area. So basically, as this entire production moved ahead from the script to the stage to the edit suite, they were constantly in battle and tension with each other. So this does fall into that rare category of two twin movies that really were very aware of each other's existence and were trying to race each other to the cinema and basically try and you know, block either film from actually getting getting at the jump ahead. So that's the background. So, Ben, did you say Kevin Costner met with George P. Cosmatis and talked about being in Tombstone but didn't like George P. Cosmatis's, I guess, vibe? No, because George P. Cosmatis actually came on later on um. after the first director, which was a screenwriter, Kevin Jarre, 
was falling behind shooting his scenes with Charlton Heston in the first week or two. And so basically he was dumped unceremoniously. And Mr. Rambo himself, Sylvester Stallone, said, okay, I worked with um, both the screenwriter, Kevin Jarre, on Rambo 2 and the director. I recommend the director. And, of course, wow. I think we all know the story, don't we, about how what happened in that situation with the ghost directing because he was basically hired as a ghost director just so Kurt Russell could direct the movie himself, which he has said on record. Yeah, right. Uh, Kurt, Kurt Russell has or George P because Martos has? Uh, Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer verified it. Well, I mean, Kurt Russell verifying that he directed the movie. But I guess if you got Val Kilmer saying he did, yeah, right. Because, I mean, yeah. George P because Martos is not a, uh, you know, a, an obvious choice necessarily for a a big star-studded Western. I mean, he made Rambo First Blood Part Two, Cobra, which is like the second best ever slasher slash cop movie, and Leviathan. You wouldn't be like, well, he's clearly the guy with the resume to to do this. But same screenwriter, and that's why. Yeah, yeah. So, And he didn't really kick on so much after that, did he? He died. Oh, did he die? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. He kicked onto the bucket. <laughs> uh, to your health, Sam. <laughs> but I suppose what's happening is the first scre- the screenwriter, uh, Kevin Jarre, is doing his first movie. It's falling behind. Uh, I guess he's going to be replaced by someone he, that he trusts perhaps. That's why that other director came on uh, because they were in a previous working relationship. But that was all null and void anyway once Kurt Russell was basically directing behind the scenes anyway. Wow. So interesting situation and the fact that it's basically verified or I guess not verified but perhaps uh, a similar story has emerged uh, from Val Kilmer gives weight to that. And Kevin Jarre never directed again. No, and he also passed away too. So Mm. there you have Mm. it. All right, let's get on with it. Let's start with our review of Tombstone. So as our guest co-host this week, Sam. Did you like it? What didn't float your boat? And was it a good execution of the common premise it shares with Wyatt Earp? Uh, I loved the film. I love I loved Tombstone. Um, <clears throat> it's, I think they're both uh, quite different interpretations of the story in a way and, and both as valid and entertaining to watch. So... I really loved Tombstone because I, unlike you, I do I do love a western, and Tombstone, um, you know, it's very dynamic. It had the file footage and the voiceover at the start, and then it comes in really big with the with the dynamic sound, and um, it was very cinematic like that. Um, Curly Bill's like a Sergio Leone villain, and, and it and it felt like you know. Wider rocks into Tombstone, just like could have been Clint Eastwood rocking into any town in the West. And it just felt like a really classic, well-executed Western. And obviously, obviously it's quite a well-known story that the showdown of the OK Corral, because both these films, that sequence is very, very similar between the two of them. Um that showdown. I mean, haven't haven't Western haven't the scholars of the Wild West meticulously recreated uh, how it went down, and so they've got pretty good, pretty good ways in which they can recreate that. Whom shot whom? Yeah, they must have because it was like the whom shot whom was all was all pretty much exactly the same. Uh, I really love the photography. Beautiful wide sunsets and 
Like it just was really, it just felt like a really enjoyable classic Western before they kind of, before they got bad um, and became too modern. Do you know what I mean? Well, Sam, in that regard, um, would you call this an authentic feeling Western? Like what's an example of a modern Western compared to this these films? Well, I mean, I guess the recently 310 to Yuma is kind of fairly modern, which I don't think. It- in terms of the filmmaking techniques, you mean like the way that the action's choreographed and that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. And then I I, I really love the Coen brothers. It's not like a feature film, but they're um, – was the the ballad of Buster Scruggs? I, that was great. Wait, Sam. So your your modern your modern western that you don't like is a thirteen year old western from two thousand and seven. <laughs> Three ten to you, yeah, that's right. No, you know what I mean. Like, I guess you know, cowboys versus aliens. <laughs> <laughs> what are we trying to compare here? We've lost something in the digital era. Like they just don't make a lot of westerns anymore, right? Like, and so no, uh, Magnificent Seven remake has to have a little bit of extra popcorn. Yes, but you know the Ridiculous Six. Oh uh, yeah, okay, uh, uh, pretty much an unsung classic. Um, but you know, but like still, like Kevin Costner is still making reasonably good ones. Citing an example of a seventeen-year-old western from two thousand and three, Open Range. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's sort of that Public Enemies thing where like. When westerns were shot on film, they looked better than nowadays. Than even digital's come a long way. Um, it, I don't know. It just feels further detached. I often say with World War Two movies, when they made those classic World War Two movies like The Great Escape and Bridge Over the River Kwai, I reckon a lot of the crew and people who were working on it, even if they didn't fight in World War Two, they would have been alive during World War II or like they're, they're, they're less removed from the events. Whereas the further we get away from World War II, they're almost making movies of movies. So uh, what was that, U571? Like it's a movie of a movie. Like the, the people who made the film didn't experience it. And whilst the people who made Tombstone certainly didn't experience the Wild West, they, they were less removed because it's, I also go jumping, jumping ahead to trivia. Josie Marcus, um, who married Wyatt Earp, she didn't, she died in 1944. And like, we watch these Western films and we think, oh, this was a long time ago, but it was fucking like, there's people alive today who were alive when Josie Marcus was alive. So it's not. It's true. If only that old lady had lived 50 more years to have seen the release of Tombstone. <laughs> Well, I mean, well, hey, Ben would know this. Was there any earlier incantations of these movies? Ah, uh, look, I'm sure there was, but weirdly, I couldn't actually see anything jumping out when did my, you know, Hollywood uh, deep dive at all. Um, it does feel like it is the sort of story that's been made a million times. Yeah, there's like the Burt Lancaster shootout at the uh, gunfight at the OK Corral. That'll be the one. Isn't there one with like Peter Fonda? Uh, there's a whole bunch. Um, that that Peter Peter Fonda. Henry Fonda. Which one's Dad Fonda? Which is the oldest Fonda? Uh, is, was he a Henry Senior? Henry. Henry Fonda? Is that his name? Henry Fonda. Buck, Buck Fonda? Buck Fonda. <laughs> That's honestly. Anyway, jumping back to kind of my my kind of look at Tombstone, like it was, it felt like a classic kind of almost spaghetti western-esque slash John Wayne-esque western and – and it was filled with action and it was just like it was fun. Whereas um, 
White Earp, which I also like, was more of a kind of grounded biopic. Hey, Sam, can I just uh, follow up on something you said earlier about modern filmmaking techniques and whether they can suit a certain story? Like, you're right, when you watch a film like 310 to Yuma with Christian Bale and Russell Crowe, it does feel um, like they're using modern tools, like the action scenes around the horses and so on, the camera kind of spins around, not quite Matrix, bullet time-esque, but it does feel like they've got modern cranes and so on at their disposal. But that all works for me and that's fine. And I think there's a few stunts there too, which sort of resemble Fast and Furious-style stunts, albeit with horses and carts and carriages. But Wait, what? In three, like when they jump a horse off the Burj Khalifa or something? Yeah. What fucking movies are you guys watching? (laughs) (laughs) But think think about the modern filmmaking techniques that Steven Spielberg brought to Saving Private Ryan. Like Yes. When he, it wasn't like a modern new uh, trick. He just sort of like adjusted the shutter speed on the camera and gave it that really kind of kinetic staccato effect when that, uh, beach landing happens and it felt more vis- visceral uh, and more documentary-like and made you feel more, more present and more horrifying than previous incarnations of many war films. So that was an example, I guess, of a modern style being introduced to what was traditionally a, classic, a classical genre set in the 40s. That works for me. Yeah. I guess the interesting thing is, can you think of an example of a Western where they have sort of had a bit of flair, and this is to either one of you, and it just doesn't work because it just grates too much? Putting aside cowboys versus aliens where, you know, they're actually aliens there, but can you think of anything where it just kind of goes too far and takes away that naturalistic look or maybe they used earlier digital cameras that don't quite sell the authenticity of the period? Um. I mean, yeah, the only thing that really sticks out of my head without <laughs> thinking about it earlier was is 310 to Yuma, but it's not actually, I guess, period films in, in general lose something on digital to me, but it's also like it's similar to that Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves versus Braveheart thing where it does get grittier. Like it's gotten actually gotten where they try and push the ultraviolence a little bit. And, and nowadays, like you watch Tombstone and White Earp, and even though the first person who gets shot in White Earp gets shot in a dick, um, it, it, is, it is fairly tame compared to like violent movies nowadays. Whereas, and even like something like Unforgiven, like it's, it's a lot more graphic kind of in its depiction of death. And, and, and Tombstone kind of harkens back to that old school John Wayne kind of, and even White Earp sort of, had a nostalgic feel about it, um, even though even though White Earp was a bit grounded, it kind of looked at the past with a little bit of rose-coloured glasses. I kind of I felt, whereas, and I was watching it and thinking about how recent it was, 1944. Sorry to jump around a bit, um, and I was thinking, fuck, this is what America is, eh? Like they 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 want it, and Florida today isn't that far removed at all from people walking around with guns and shooting each other. I saw a video yesterday of this dude in a car who just opened fire on a, on a car next to him in a road raid incident. Wow. It's crazy. That's just it's got a lot to do with Tombstone, 1993. <laughs> George P. Cosmatis. I love it. Actually, Sam, you do bring up something real interesting, though. You do. But before that, um, 
divergent uh, into road rage in Florida. Um, and that was like, uh, you mentioned Unforgiven, which I think came out a year or two before these, which was definitely a kind of um, a, a, a look at the Wild West without rosy glasses on or a sort of post-modernisation yes. of the Western genre or a reflection on that or something. I think you're totally right and both Tombstone and Wyatt Earp are not that. Neither of them are particularly, you know, no. reflective on the era or the attitudes of the era. I'm not saying they should be at all. I, I love the shit out of Tombstone and I like Wyatt Earp, um, but they're definitely a much more of a sort of, you know, old-timey flavour uh, uh, to it. They're, you know, heroic and fun. Um, Although I suppose Wyatt Earp has a moment or two of kind of grittiness, but but otherwise, yeah, they definitely feel like they're uh, moving in the opposite direction to what Unforgiven was, you know, pushing the Western genre at the at the time. Yes. And Gabe, how about you? Let's jump to your review of Tombstone. What did you like? What didn't you like? And was this the better version of this biography? Uh, yes. I mean, like, it's just a it's just a great time. It's just a great time at the pictures. Uh, Tombstone. Uh, it's got everything you want. A, a handsome all-star cast, uh, m- actors hamming it so uh, mercilessly, professionally and perfectly, uh, good action, romance. It doesn't outstay its welcome. It's fair to say I'm a big, big fan of Tombstone as a film, as a Western, as a lifestyle. <laughs> That's a lifestyle. Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it is a it is a fucking amazing cast though, isn't it? It's it's such a great cast. And I feel like when I was watching Wyatt Earp, I was like, oh, I kind of wish I was watching this movie with the Tombstone cast a little bit. Like most of them, even though everyone in Wyatt Earp does a pretty good job, and some of them do a great job, you, you I, I Tombstone certainly wins in the cast stakes I reckon I think you could definitely do a big mix and match and end up with the perfect yeah sort of perfect cast for these between these two movies but but Ben I guess I'm interested as someone who doesn't like westerns or or favors them less than the say erotic thriller genre of which you are a profound and often uh remarkera of what do you think of Tombstone? And and High School Musical as well. He's a big High School Musical fan. Well, I mean, that goes without saying. Yeah, look, Adrian <laughs> Lynn has always been an idol of mine. <laughs> so He's an idol of mine. Makes good movies. He- <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll first give credit where credit is due. I think the hairs and follicles in Tombstone are much more authentic and grounded than the wig shenanigans going on in White Earp. Uh, we'll get to White Earp, but... Tombstone just feels like a much more grounded movie. It feels like it's dirtier and grittier. Apparently, if you read online, a lot is made of the fact that they all have real moustaches, which kind of seems a bit silly to really, you know, go on about that. But I suppose when you think about how often you you see hair pieces and beards just look ridiculous, like a Santa Claus stick-on beard or goofy wigs. And it does very much feel like we're in a real world in Tombstone, and I appreciated that. I think having looking at this time in the mid 90s, I think this is about two years after Unforgiven. And what I like about Unforgiven is what you said, Gabe. It's a postmodern Western. It basically was a commentary not just on Clint Eastwood's career, but on the whole genre. And that's why it won Oscars and 
you know, is still an incredible movie to watch today. I think it's a top five film of all time, almost. Top ten. Yeah. Yeah. I think I actually was have been spoiled by that. I actually think, looking back, that it was the first Western I ever saw. Wow. Yeah. And so I think as a result, it's sort of like then for shaped how I watch those that genre. And I really like I didn't see it at the time, knowing it was a postmodern film and that it's always playing with cliches and uh, turning things on its head. But I really liked that a lot. I liked it then and I like it now. This one definitely does feel more old-timey, as Gabe said, in terms of its general structure. It's, you know, the type of hero's journey, uh, the way it's all building to the ultimate fight. Um, for me, I just didn't find it, I guess, as engaging. Um I find a lot of the- As engaging as Wyatt Earp or- Oh, just as a film in general. I found it better than Wyatt Earp. But oh, okay. for me, for me, these films have a certain pacing and a certain- uh, Often they're locked into a location. Like you're locked into the main street, you're locked into the saloon, you're locked in the town. Um, and that's why I often find some of those films at one location challenging to watch because I like when films use a lot of music and- different locations to kind of like just keep things moving forward in the story and often in the other types of films you just can't do that you don't do that you are very much grounded in that one location so if i was to criticize some westerns it'd be the same reason i'd criticize many films set in one location um look i don't really have great criticisms to make of this film i just don't have great good things to say about it in that i didn't watch it and i find myself really engaged I do feel it's a film of its time that people saw at the time and think really fondly of it and revisit it, but revisit it with that lens as to what it was at that point in cinematic history. And so me to come in to watch it now, it's not quite dropping in to see Blair Witch Project for the first time, but I just don't feel a connection to that era when some of these stars like Val Kilmer and so on were at their peak. Uh, I mean, this was basically... We've had the Kurt Russell renaissance in like the last five years. But between this movie and about five years ago, he kind of vanished, didn't he? Like he just dropped off the radar. And this was probably at his peak, isn't it? Or maybe just before he slides sort of out of view for a while? Uh, uh, Big Trouble in Little China is Kurt Russell's peak and I won't have any arguments about that. <laughs> he does wear a mean tank top there. But you could just say his peak lasted for, you know, uh, 10, 12, 12 years, you know, 14 years. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, look, again, this is one of the situations where I can't criticise much about it. I just wasn't really engaged by but, it. But, Ben, um, wouldn't you see a scene, for instance, like the one where... Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday and Michael Bain's Johnny Ringo do Latin at each other as like- Fuck, that's a good scene. Amazing shit. Like just like as a film lover, you know, just be like, damn, that's awesome. Like this is awesome. I cannot wait for these guys to like gunfight. Yeah, no. Just Val Kilmer in general, he puts on a clinic in this movie. Yeah. It doesn't, didn't, it didn't make you moist? It did not. It did not. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. So- I want to hear you guys wax lyrical about it because I actually might appreciate this film in hearing you guys speak fondly about it because, for me, things just didn't jump out. Um, I think I actually appreciate it more in comparison to White Earp, so I'm going to jump to White Earp in that review because I think it illustrates of a lot of what can go wrong and what Tombstone got right. 
And often that's one of the situations, isn't it, that you actually don't appreciate what does work until you see something that doesn't. And in my opinion, white herb doesn't. So let's jump off with that one. So Sam, can you recall the first time you watched white herb and uh, what floated your boat and what just did not work at all? Uh, yeah, well, the first time I saw White Earp was, again, it was last night. And um, yeah, I didn't see it back in the day. And I definitely wouldn't have appreciated this back in the day. I would have appreciated Tombstone as a young adolescent more than I would have appreciated White Earp, which, which would have just been boring to me back then. But I enjoyed it a lot now. And um, I, I, White Earp has its problems um, for sure. But I really appreciate the the what they were what they were shooting for. Do you know what I mean? You know when you see a film and you're like, oh, they were, they were shooting for. I can see where they were going for, and they don't quite get it. But at least they were shooting for the stars. And wait, wait, wait what, what do you think they were going for here? Well, like, well, they wanted a. I feel like it, they wanted it to be a realistic, gritty, um, biopic compared to Tombstone's classic. Western um, showdown film. So Tombstone has a has a wicked montage after the after Kurt says, "Take a good look at him, Mike, because that's how you're going to end up." The cowboys are finished. You understand me? I see a red sash. I kill a man wearing it. So run, you Kurt. Uh, run! Tell all the other Kurt's the line's coming. You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! And then they have the mad montage going around killing people. There's no montages really in Wide Earth. There's, and then, you know, it starts with that Kevin Costner silhouetted in the bar, having his coffee and smoking a cigar and you know it's very serious and then his his boys come in and they say the the fellas are down the road and then it cuts back to him as a youth and and they 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 were going for like a, a I feel like they were going for a solemn biopic of of the man Wyatt Earp whereas Tombstone was going for montages you know yeah fun yeah, montages. Fun montages. Which is and 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 not not only montages, but some fucking cracking lines. Like you put you put you're my Huckleberry in Wyatt Earp, and it's a thousand times better. That is true. That is true. I think you're right, though, Sam. It's definitely going for a kind of sweeping grandiosity, a a much longer and wider canvas. Yes. And I mean, it's an hour longer. Wyatt Earp is an hour longer than Tombstone, and it takes almost an hour before. Kevin Costner's Wyatt Earp even gets to Tombstone. You've got to sit through. 90 minutes. It's 90 minutes till he gets to Tombstone. Yeah. The death of his first wife, the de- death of his second wife. And probably another third wife dies in there. Which I think you actually they, they, they rocket through all that stuff which informs his character. It's, it's really interesting. So they, they give you that, like the death of his first wife is obviously very informative of his character and his dad. And Gene Hackman, Hackman is fucking brilliant in Wyatt Earp. He acts Kurt Russell off the screen. Kurt Russell's not in Wyatt Earp. Um, sorry, uh, Kevin Costner. They both start with K. Sorry. Gene Hackman acts Kevin Costner off the screen. And I was going to say one of the issues that I had with Wyatt Earp was I do not believe Kevin Costner at all as the young naive Wyatt. 
um, partly because of his neck and chin, but also he's just kind of, I can see him acting as, as young and naive. And then there is a cool moment just before he uh, throws the pool ball at Crease from Karate Kid where his eyes kind of change and you think, oh, that's the moment. And, and he's thinking about the line his dad tells him. When you find yourself in a fight with such viciousness, hit first if you can. And when you do hit, hit to kill. And he goes, you'll know. And you can see in his eyes that he goes, oh, fuck, this is what dad was talking about. And he throws the pool ball and then takes his gun. That's a great moment. But up until that, I don't really believe him as naive. I don't believe him as a drunk. It, it's pretty amazing. It, it's pretty amazing he uh, he defeats Sensei Kreese, though, like using his dad's patented hit first, hit hard. Um, well, and ironically, that's the uh, Cobra Kai motto. Exactly. Um I think it's kind of funny as well for a movie that's trying to be very, it's quite self-serious and sweeping to have your first antagonist turn up and be um, Martin Cove, who rules, who rules in absolutely everything, but is definitely not on a par with, you know, the the level of all-starredness that surrounds it. Um, Power, Powers Booth. Well, I mean, Powers Booth rules. Um, ben, did you reckon White Earp was a bit of a... Uh, sleepy, sleepy affair. Yeah, it was. I agree with, with Sam. It starts off weekly, I think, by having Kevin Costner playing what a twenty-year-old version of himself. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't have the face for it. Brad Pitt's someone who can do that because Brad Pitt basically. They should have had someone else. Yeah, it's like in Goodfellas when he's like, "I was a twenty-one-year-old." You're like, Ray Liotta is forty-two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like what? <laughs> okay, I, I guess we're. I guess we're doing this now. <laughs> <laughs> um. Like, not only did he just have a face shape that doesn't suit him being young, like perhaps it's his nose shape or his jowls or whatever. I mean, he's a, he's a good-looking guy and he's kept in shape, but his face just doesn't look like the face of a 20-year-old. But to add that kind of reddish-brown hair, um, the wig is terrible at so many levels. It's the colour. It looks like something out of Annie or, you know, um, I, don't, I can't remember. I, it, it looks like the sort of thing I'd buy in a Halloween shop as a joke. Like it's a really bad wig with that really weird red-brown colour. And I agree, Sam, I can see him acting young, like he's trying to be yeah. naive, like naive, like wide-eyed, bushy-tailed. And you just see him thinking, okay, my journey for this film is to progressively, even though we'll shoot out of sequence, of course, and shooting a movie, to start off here is really naive and then go through a journey. So by the end, I'm a hardened, hardened, tough guy. And everything from him trying to be hardened, like there's a scene when he berates, is it Ed who gets shot in the stomach? Ed's played by Bill Pullman. Oh, yeah. Where he berates Ed for being a little bit too gentlemanly with these guys that come into town with guns around their waist and stuff. And he just, it's the whole thing so obvious as to what's to come is that, of course, Ed will get his comeuppance from being decent. And the message or the moral of the story there is White Earp's sure tough and mean and whatever in some ways, a bit a bit grisly, but he has to be to survive in this world. And that's why he doesn't suffer a single bullet graze, you know, in his entire life. Is it like you're you're tough and grisly, White Earp, but goddamn, you get results. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, which is really interesting. Like, first of all, just as an aside, I feel like Bill Pullman is the parody Kevin Costner. Um what do you mean? You mean he acts like Kevin Costner or 
not not in this film, just generally. Bill Pullman is like, if you were making a parody of any Kevin Costner film back in the nineties, you'd you'd cast Bill Pullman. Um, the poor man's Kevin. <laughs> poor man's Kevin. Oh, well, you, well, maybe just a funnier, more interesting Kevin. I don't know. Um, but it's yeah. White Earp spends ninety minutes setting up White Earp's character, and Tombstone Kurt Russell gets off the train. Come on. Come on, Hurts, don't it? Now let go of that stud. Go on about your business. And says, go get fucked to someone, and we know who he is. Like, instantly. In five seconds, we know who Kurt is. And I was going to say something. With Westerns, I feel like the good guy has to be a little villainy as well himself. To, to, to be a goody, to be a successful goody. In that in world. The Wild West, yeah. yep, totally. In the Wild West, you have to have a little bad in you, which is where Bill Pullman died because he didn't have a little bad in him. But I don't think Kevin has enough bad in him naturally either, whereas Kurt Russell does. So you, you think about some of the great Western heroes like Clint Eastwood, like he, he especially in Unforgiven, he's a fucking bad motherfucker. Also Charles Bronson, back in the Sergio Leone days, Charles Bronson and... And um, and Clint back then they weren't they weren't goody two shoes which Kevin is he's just he just is no matter how you spend ninety minutes setting him up as a badass he's still a goody two shoes and the other one who does that really well like Timothy Oliphant in Deadwood he plays a great villain and that's why he's a good hero in a western yeah that's a really good comparison actually. Timothy Oliphant actually has a little bit of bad in him and he does that in Justify the TV series as well. Uh, but he also has that swagger and that slight dry sense of humour, that wit as well. I think with this film, it's interesting as to what each film is trying to say about the character. Tombstone seems to be about a guy who's already hardened. He comes to the small town and basically has to sort of make his last fight and move on. Whereas Kevin Costner's film seems to be basically about how two to three women have shaped this man it's got really weird gender politics. Very weird. But that was probably true to the time. Well, what do you think, though, the point of the story is? Like, it starts off with, I think it's Josie, isn't it, who dies of typhoid. That sets him up as being angry with the world. No, Josie is his last wife. Oh, okay. So the first wife, Ursula, I think it was. Yeah. So she dies of typhoid, and that sort of sets him off to be, you know, stealing horses and drinking, get, getting locked in jail and basically hardening up, and then he sort of goes through that dip before coming out the other side as a, a skinner shooting and skinning buffaloes and, you know, finding his own redemption and so on and eventually becoming a, a lawman first of, as a deputy sheriff. If you took the first hour off this movie, <laughs> which is the entire love story with Ursula, would it change anything? Because I don't feel it adds enough wrinkles and deviations to his journey to pay off in any way. Well, I, I'm, I'm just questioning why we spend so much time with this romantic aspect of him, which I assume is just to try and really articulate he was innocent, but he had to be he had to lose something to become someone else. Well, yeah, that's right. So, because Kevin Costner is America's dad, sort of thing. Like he's he's Superman's he's dad. He's the Midwestern. He's a, he's well. That's you can't get more America's dad than Superman's dad. 
he he's a good guy. He's a good Midwestern guy. And to have him being as an asshole, right? You have to spend an hour justifying why he's an asshole. Whereas Kurt Russell can come come in straight away and shoot someone in the kneecaps, and it's fine. Yeah, it could be as simple as a casting thing. Although I do recall watching Open Range, the 2003 film that Gabe mentioned earlier, and I think he starts off as a bit grisly at the start of that film, doesn't he, Gabe? And you buy it. And maybe that's because also he's a bit older. Yeah, I mean, I think Kevin Costner's got some range to be uh, villainous. Uh, Let's not forget that just eight years after Tombstone and Wired Up, he and Kurt Russell teamed up for the unforgettable 3,000 miles to Graceland. Ah. <laughs> that was more like a film crime, Gabe, than actually a crime on screen. I have I have enough. Well, I mean, if it was a crime, then lock me up with it. <laughs> and throw away the key. <laughs> I, think, I think, Ben, to your point more seriously, I think you could probably have been a little bit more judicious with the cutting in the first hour of this movie. It moves incredibly slowly. I'm not surprised they tried to stick the Kevin Costner thinking about his whole life before he rolls down to the OK Corral before it, as if to say to people, don't worry, we will eventually get here. You know, your patience will be rewarded. Just sit through, you know, the the death of his wife by sickness, the misery and death of his wife by drugs, him cheating on his wives, you know, him bringing his side bitch to dinner with his wife, all kinds of wife-related horrible tomfoolery when really, you know, you could have just had more Michael Madsen, more Dennis Quaid, more Jeff Fay, more gunfight shit, you know? I'll tell you a great example of where it felt really slow. There's a scene where he's just made love to Ursula. I think they got married and then it's the morning after or whatever and I think it's raining outside or snowing or something and the camera goes to the window and I expected time to pass, a bit like in that scene where you see Hugh Grant uh, walking through the streets of Notting Hill and the seasons change and so on. One of those little tricks where you then pan back and she's pregnant, something like that, for example. And it does that transition without time changing. <laughs> so it goes all the way to the window yeah. and it goes from, I think, night to day and it comes back to them. And I'm thinking, okay, this will be like 10 years later. And so it's just the next morning. <laughs> Like a totally gratuitous shot, doesn't add anything at all. Um, even after the wedding, for example, there are multiple shots of them doing kissing on the kissing on the carriage and kissing in the doorway and kissing in bed. It's like, it's fine, we get it. They got married, let's move on, let's jump ahead to typhoid, bring on typhoid. So, yeah, I, you could easily excised half an hour from this movie and got down to a brisker two and a half hours from three hours and still kept that character of Ursula to try and justify why he becomes this grizzled character. So Totally, totally. It just felt sluggish and unnecessary and trying to demonise in some way for the sake of the story Kevin Costner, the actor, mm. than was actually required for the character. I mean, I think also Tombstone sets up very clearly and from the beginning who the antagonists are going to be. The Cowboys, you know, led by Powers Booth, who's awesome, as Curly Bill, whose sidekick is 
Michael Bane as Johnny Ringo. So straight from the beginning, you're like, the Cowboys are a ruthless outfit, you know, and they've teamed with the Clantons who have got, you know, Stephen Lang and Thomas Hayden Church playing them. And you, you get it from the beginning that this shit is just going to pop off in a big way. Whereas Wider takes just a very long time to sort of find the sort of conflict at the heart of its story. Um, mm. And I think that sort of does a disservice to the the pacing of it. Look, I, I like Wyatt Earp quite a lot as a movie, but it's, it's you know, in trying to sew together this big tapestry of the, the West, you think, wow, Tombstone feels just as kind of epic in scope but does it in 60 minutes less. That's funny because, yeah, I often think the best biopics are ones that they're not the ones that try and capture a historical figure's entire life. They're the ones that go, okay, this is the – this is the historical moment in their life that makes them mm. such an important figure and they focus on that moment. Totally. Which is what Tombstone is. Like Wyatt Earp takes 90 minutes to get to Tombstone and then it's pretty much Tombstone from there for the next 90 minutes. Um, yeah. Where, and Whereas Tombstone with Kurt, it goes, you know, we're not, we're not trying to justify or, or tell Wyatt Earp's story. We're just telling the story of, of, of Tombstone. Yeah, Sam, it's funny you mention that as to what makes a good bio. There's an expression that one of the real-life people who was featured in, uh, he was dramatised by someone else in, I think it was the Danny Boyle, Steve Jobs movie, and he said none of it happened but all of it was true. Yeah. Yeah. And it's basically you capture the sentiment, you capture the major beats, and maybe you might be moving a catalyst forward and backwards in time and- Usually you amalgamate characters, so you might sort of have like one villain rather than three and you skip through time and so on. Yeah. But you just find the key parts that shaped that character and you sort of focus on those. Yeah. And I could see what they were trying to do with Wyatt Earp to try and show how he'd been shaped in a certain way. But I think it fell into the trap of trying to squeeze in the entire Wikipedia page into a movie. It's interesting, Ben, as well, that you say that because the film I was trying to remember the title of before with um, Henry Fonda, which is a OK Corral movie, is called My Darling Clementine, and it ends with the gunfight at the OK Corral, but they kill off Doc Holliday in the gunfight at the OK Corral. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. So so I think, and it's a good film, I think I think I would much prefer to watch an entertaining movie that took historical liberties, particularly about one set so long ago, than one that tries to sort of, I don't know, fastidiously but ploddingly recreate those facts. You know, what's that famous saying from um, uh, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend? Oh, yeah. Perfect way of summarising it. Yeah, that's exactly true. Yeah. That's a great quote. Who said that? Um, it's from um, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. That's great. An awesome Western, yeah, yeah, with John Wayne and um, uh, what's that guy? Ah, oh, it's Martha, yeah. Um, uh, Stuart, Jimmy Stewart. I don't know. That was a terrible Jimmy Stewart impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> that was terrible. That was terrible. <laughs> Look at that. I don't know. I can't do that. <laughs> All right. Fuck. Let's jump to our <laughs> combined reviews. So any notable similarities or any coincidences or ripoffs of either film? <laughs> well, the, the shoot, like I said, the shootout. At- <laughs> they both appear to be about the same character. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they, they do indeed. <laughs> Sorry, Sam, you go, mate. Uh, what was the question? Oh, the, the similarity. Yeah, so the, the shootout at the OK Corral was very, very similar. And so obviously there's a very detailed account of who shot who and got shot in the knee and stuff like that. Um, down to the fact that 
Ike didn't have a gun and, you know, went and hid in the the sheriff's house and then stole his, you know, all of that stuff. It was very, very similar. But obviously they weren't ripping each other off. It's it's from a detailed historical account. Which film then has aged better, do you think? I'm assuming you'll say Tombstone. I think they both age pretty good. I actually, I, I, don't, I like both of them. Like I do like I do like Tombstone better, but only by a smidge and well, maybe more than a smidge. But I think they both age pretty well. Like I said, like I think these movies will age well than a lot of than a lot of period films, not necessarily westerns, but period films that have been shot more recently. Yeah. Okay. I think you're right. I mean, Wyatt Earp will age fine. If I never see it again in my lifetime, that's fine. But I can guarantee you I'll watch Tombstone a bunch more times on Blu-ray. Yeah, like so Wyatt Earp age as well as a historical document of of the man and Tombstone age as well as the legend. Uh, very well put, Sam. How about uh, plot holes and missed opportunities? What could the filmmakers have done better with this same high concept of a bio based on Wyatt Earp? Is there a third movie there that takes some better elements of each movie? Are either of you two big experts on Wyatt Earp himself? Like, is there anything that was very clearly and obviously left out? Like, it's like, you know, would the Kevin Costner Wyatt Earp have benefited from being another hour longer and had his whole sojourn into, you know, some other part of his life they missed? Yeah, it's funny you ask. Apparently it was actually his brothers who were the deputy and sheriff in Tombstone that actually were the sort of main, main stars of the show. But apparently he was great at self-promotion. Yeah, Virgil was the man. Right, wow. So Virgil Earp, played by Sam Elliott in Tombstone and Michael Madsen in Wyatt Earp, he was the Tombstone City and the Deputy U.S. Marshal on the day of the shootout of the Okra Corral and had more experience in combat as a sheriff, um, marshal and soldier than Wyatt, who was erroneous, erroneously regarded as the central figure in the shootout. Huh. I can tell you why. Wyatt Earp is a cool name. Virgil, no one ever wants to see a movie about a character named Virgil. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think probably didn't, didn't a lot of these cowboys go around and do shows and meet and greets and stuff after the kind of West died down? And I guess Wyatt was the one that went on the road. Yeah, totally. Totally. Okay, uh, let's move on to some trivia. Let's do some casting woulda, shoulda, couldas. So we talked about how these films have got a pretty amazing range of actors did you guys know, starting with Tombstone, that Rob Mitchum was signed on to star as Old Man Clanton? But prior to principal photography, he fell off from his horse, ironic, and injured his back and had to quit. Which character was Old Man Clanton? I can't recall who he played. Old Man Clanton. Uh, he actually ended up doing the narration at the start and the end of the film instead. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. Which Yeah, which they, they bookend the film with the VO, which I, I, I love a good bookend. Uh, and I and I love some good VO, so good on him. Yeah. Uh, also, apparently Willem Dafoe was the original choice to play Doc Halliday instead of Val Kilmer, but Bonavista, which is owned by Disney, refused to distribute the film if he was cast due to his role in the controversial The Last Temptation of Christ back in '88, which was actually oh wow, like a few years before. Does that mean there's an alternate universe where Val Kilmer plays the Green Goblin in Spider Man? <laughs> yes, yes, there is. <laughs> and the last one, which you'll love, both being Mickey Rourke fans, he turned down the role of Johnny Ringo. Mm, I, f I feel like that's he would have been good, but goddamn, 
this is this is the absolute pinnacle of Michael Bain's professional performances. Fucking oath. He's fucking great in it. He's just so good. He's fucking great. He's fucking great. He keep well, because Val Kilmer's amazing. And Michael Bean is Val Kilmer's bunny. And he keeps up with him. Ugh. I reckon. Imagine a movie. He keeps up with him. Imagine a movie where they became friends, those two characters, you know, and went on the road. Oh, fuck yeah. That's the sequel. Uh, Save that for the sequel. And then they fuck. <laughs> you, you know Michael Bean almost quit? Really? Because he was friends with Kevin Jar. Oh, wow. And so when Kevin Jar left, he almost quit the movie. Damn. Well, I'm glad he didn't. Yeah. And he brought that animosity with him to his performance. Yeah. <laughs> now, one more casting would have, should have, could have, this time for White Earp. Michael Madsen was offered the role of Vincent, of course, Vincent Vega in Pulp Fiction, but he couldn't get out of this film to do it. Damn. Well, thank fuck for that on both counts, to be honest, because I think he actually does a pretty good job as Virgil. Um, he's one of the few people who I, who I'm an R about. If I, we were making the hybrid film and I had to choose between him and Sam Elliott, I probably would pick Sam Elliott, but... I would think about that one a little bit harder than the other characters. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand Michael Madsen in this movie at all, and that's probably because of Reservoir Dogs and so on, and also that goofy wig he has. Whereas Sam Elliott, I think he was born on this earth to play Western characters. Like, I reckon he came out with that soup-straining moustache. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's amazing. It's amazing. It is, isn't it? Amazing. All right, spot the Aussie. Any Aussies in either movie? I don't think so. Hmm, I did not see any. Okay. All right, let's move on. The last little tidbit in a Big Trouble and Little Production. Uh, apparently, uh, George P. Cosmatos claimed that Stephen Lang was drunk for most of the filming of Tombstone. Not that he appears in the film that much, but I guess he was getting into character. Wow. For years I didn't even know that was Stephen Lang until, like, the last time I watched it. Avatar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Stephen Lang's an amazing actor and he does, he does look drunk. And the other little tidbit, uh, well, before we leave marketing, methodology, madness and missteps, Gene Hackman received third billing and was named at all the posters, even though he has less than 10 minutes of screen time. <laughs> yeah, right. Good on you, Gene. Gene deserves that billing just based on his performance. All right. All right. Let's jump to the box office. Uh, staying with you, Sam, which movie was the box office champ, do you think? Uh, Tombstone. Gabe? Uh, yeah, definitely Tombstone. Okay, Tombstone. Uh, I can't quite find out how much it made, but sorry, how much it was made for. I think it was around twenty-five million, but it made fifty-six and a half million at the box office, so doubled its money. White Earp, unfortunately, cost sixty-three million and only made twenty-five million. Terrible. It's the wigs. It's the wigs. It's the wigs. So yeah. White Earp came six months later and did not do as well despite costing almost three times as much. Okay. That's how much money you save with fake moustaches. <laughs> That's a, it's pretty amazing they spent what would be the equivalent today of almost 100 and, 100, 110 million bucks on a White Earp Western in 1994. Yeah, totally. I mean, that was just the clout of Kevin Costner. And I guess those yeah. skinning scenes with the fake buffaloes must have cost a serious bit of coin because- those buffaloes feature for a long time. I think that was part of the biopic nature of the film and they wanted to tell the story of the West as it were and that was like, oh, look, we fucking slaughtered all the buffalo. Yeah, I think you're right. 
Um, do you think the first film helped or hindered the box office of the second? I think it completely fucked the <laughs> box office of the second. Yeah. Okay, let's jump to Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, which movie impressed the critics, do you think? Tombstone. Sam? Um. Yeah, Tombstone. I feel like, uh, yeah, I think Kevin Costner's Midwestern boyish charm was starting to grate on critics by this stage and they may have um, given it a bit of panning. So Tombstone has 74% on the tomato meter with critics versus White Earp, which scores a lowly 44%. But get this, when it comes to fans... Tombstone has a 94% audience score from 195,000 user ratings compared to a lousy 61% for wide up. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. Um, I think 44% is a little bit harsh, but that's the nature of Rotten Tomatoes. You know, it's funny how it works, you know, the aggregate of positive versus negative reviews and how positive versus negative is judged. So, yeah, wide up's probably a 6 out of 10. Yeah. I'd agree with the fans there. Okay. It's time for then the awards. Drum roll, Gabe. Drum roll, Sam. <laughs> okay. he, he literally has the ability to put in like bugle horn maybe or something. Like old <laughs> west, old. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's go with uh, best title, Sam. Tombstone. Gabe. Tombstone. Yeah, Tombstone just sounds so evocative. It's, um, you know, the town... Sells the movie. But but if they had, had have made Wyatt Earp about his brother and called it Virgil Earp, that might have won. Or just Virgil. What if it was just called the 40-year-old Virgil? <laughs> no, the 40-year-old Virgil. Virgil Earp. <laughs> All right, best poster. Um, what do you describe the Tombstone poster? And you can describe the Wyatt Earp one, Gabe. So the Tombstone poster is on IMDb, has the tagline at the very top, justice is coming, with... Val, Sam Elliott, Kurt, and uh, who's the last guy? Fucking Bill Paxton, motherfucker. Bill Paxton, sorry. I was thinking Bill Pullman, but I knew it wasn't. That's why I couldn't. You know, um, Bill Paxton has them walking down the main street towards the OK Corral, which is just fucking beautiful. Although, if anything, I would. I would extend the sandy colour to the edges of the frame instead of having the white border sort of thing. Although it does appear that Kurt Russell is wearing quite a nice lady's cassock. <laughs> like a long dress. Yeah, he looks like he he almost looks like a priest or something, maybe. Anyway, you know that uh, there's shenanigans afoot in that poster. And Gabe, how about the White Earp poster? The White Earp Kevin Costner poster is Kevin Costner and he's shooting some guns, but he's facing away from us, turning his hips. He's firing off into the distance. All right. So what, which is the winner? We don't want, we don't want one. I'm thinking Tombstone is much more evocative, right? You know. Yeah, of course. It feels like it feels dangerous. It feels it feels enticing. It does. All right. Let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after American indie actors Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. In either of these two movies, who got their big break? Gabe, starting with Tombstone. Their big, hmm, actually their big break. I mean, yep. I guess Billy Bob Thornton turns up in this movie, the namesake of this award. Arguable whether this was his big break or not, though. Sam? No, it wasn't. This is his. Bef- this is Billy Bob's um, before they were famous uh-huh. film. Fair. For sure. 
Um, I don't think it was. I think you've got to be a lead role to get this award. You've got to basically be, you know, jumping from a small film to this film, and this is a big opportunity. Maybe Billy. What? No, Billy Zane had already been in a bunch of stuff. I assume. Um, no, I think they were both. The leads were all both stacked on these these films, sort of speak. Um, and carefully, no one bigger than Kevin in in Wyatt Earp. You almost you look at the wide open. It's, it feels almost narcissistic that poster. I'm not going back to the poster. But we'll stay, we're sticking with um, the category, but yeah. Well, I don't know. All right. How about wide earth? Any nominees? What about young man who would go on to play Jesus Christ for Mel Gibson, Jimothy Camisel? Jesus Christ, Jimmy Camisel. Ah, who does he play? He turns up as Warren. <laughs> Warren. <laughs> Warren <laughs> I thought actually uh, Joanna Going, who played Josie, this was a big break for her. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, good. Who would later go on to turn up in Phantoms. Phantoms? What's Phantoms? I think you don't bomb in Phantoms, yo! There you go. I was just setting that up for Sam. <laughs> Thank you. I know how much he likes that. Uh, what about Tay Leone? She turns up in this. This was quite early in her uh, career. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, okay. Let's put her down. T. Leone? Tay Leone? I'm not quite sure. Let's put T. Leone down as the winner, I think. Okay. Okay. Moving on. The Before They Were Famous Award or the Blink Annual Miss Them Award. Okay. <laughs> there is a laundry list here and they could also qualify for other awards down the track here. But, Sam, starting with Tombstone. Was this before or after... The Big Lebowski. This was before The Big Lebowski. And Sa- so I this guess- before The Big Lebowski, before Sling Blade. So, Sa- so Sam Elliott, I guess. Sam Elliott. I feel like most of these films are kind of, most of these characters were set in the, like kind of came up in the 80s and 90s. They weren't. Sam Elliott had been in lots and lots and lots of things before this. I do not think we can give a Before They Were Famous award to a like fifty-seven-year-old actor. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I know he was. He was. I think Billy Bob's definitely a nominee. He played Johnny Tyler in the bar playing uh, at the casino. I'd say. I mean, John Corbett. I guess. Oh yeah, John he, Corbett. He from. Uh, uh, yes. But he he'd already been famous already in Northern Exposure, the TV show. So probably couldn't be him. Billy Zane had had a few runs on the board. Terry O'Quinn, who plays Mayor John Clum, he was John Locke and Lost. I think he's definitely a worthy nominee. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Stephen Lang, who played Ike Clanton. I mean, I assume he'd been in some stuff before, but I sort of feel that since Avatar, you see him and stuff earlier on and think, oh, it's the guy from Avatar. Yeah, but this was back in like the 90s when Stephen Lang looked very different. Like if you watch Manhunter, Michael Mann's Hannibal Lecter movie from like, I don't know, 87, Stephen Lang turns up in that as Freddie Lowndes and he's got like bright red hair and he's kind of fat. So he's he's gone through some uh, looks, you know, reinventions. So who's our winner? What about Thomas Hayden Church, who later on is in you know Ned and Stacey and various? Oh yeah, okay. That's things. I think he's definitely a good qualifier because he became quite famous afterwards. Okay, uh, in White Earth, I had Mark Hammond who went on to play the guy at NCIS. He was a uh, sheriff Johnny Bean. I mean, he's going to be a nominee, right? Yeah, sure. Mark Harmon. So we need we need a winner. We need a winner. I'm I'm leaning towards Thomas Hayden Church just because. Yeah, give it to Thomas. Yeah, done. All right, he gets it. All right, moving on. 
The Tommy Lee Jones Show Stealer Award, named after the iconic performance by Tommy Lee in a supporting role in The Fugitive. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? Sam. Despite being in a small or poorly written role, I wouldn't call it poorly written, but it was a small role, Gene Hackman, for me, fucking is the best performance of Wired Up. Yeah, that's good. Gabe? This award always trips me up because I always think despite the word, it's that word despite being in a small or poorly written role. So if we're going to be true to the thing, I'm going to go for a double combo of both Billy Zane and Jason Priestley in Tombstone as the, <laughs> oh, as, as the, as Jason Priestley essaying the part of a young man uh, caught, uh, uh, caught by how much he loves the performance of Billy Zane's actor only to have his, you know, heart broken when he discovers that the Cowboys have shot Billy Zane down. And ever since that day, he turns his back on the outlaw lifestyle because, man, they, they killed art. Wow, okay. That is a weird little um, – that is an interesting weird little subplot that they chuck into Tombstone, isn't it? But, but, but they, do it, they do it beautifully. All right, we're down to the great – the very great Gene Hackman versus – uh, Jason Priestley. Okay. I need a winner. <laughs> Sam, who do you, who wins between the great Gene Hackman versus the, I mean, you know, arguably pretty good. I think Gene Hackman wins. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, moving on. So I mentioned him earlier on, the Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on with bigger roles. Sam, who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films? Starting with Tombstone. Uh, I'm not sure who didn't make the, the the best of their. I think maybe the director who didn't make the best of it because. <laughs> well, he, he made like. Uh, did he make another movie after this? Uh, some DTV sort of movie. Some. Yeah, he did. He did. So he passed away in 2005. So it was actually a while after this movie, but after this movie, he did. Um, this one episode of TV and then something called A Shadow Conspiracy in 97. Mm. But he died like eight years after that. So I would say he's definitely a nominee. Uh, well, let's give it to let's give it to Jason Priestley, who I don't think, you know, he never really, he never ever made the transition from 90210 to, to film in a big way. So maybe he squandered his opportunity in this in this big film. Yeah, okay. Any nominees from White Earp? Uh, the film itself <laughs> squandered an opportunity. You know, it certainly, you know, um, didn't make the best of it. Uh, you could say, you could consider Lawrence Kasdan. Let's just think about this. Okay, so he does Body Heat, The Big Chill, Silverado, The Accidental Tourist, I Love You to Death, Grand Canyon, White Earth. He then does, these are all his director, he's actually written much more, French Kiss, Mumford, Dreamcatcher, Darling Companion, and November Road. Not a great filmography, right? No, not great. But I think the fact that the other director of Tombstone just did one straight to VHS movie and that was it probably pips him. Perhaps. perhaps. But I think for the first time ever we've had two directors going toe-to-toe. Well, I've got, a, I've got an alternate pitch for this award and I'll make it quick. Dennis Quaid, imagine having your lunch eaten so bad by Val Kilmer, you know, you lose all this weight for the role. Yeah, he does lose a lot of weight for this role, doesn't he? He's doing some big, serious acting. You know, he's doing an accent. He's looking emaciated. Val Kilmer comes along, blows him off the screen. Poor Dennis Quaid probably thought he was going to get an Oscar nomination. Nutter. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, that's a good call. 
I don't think it quite fits the award, but I appreciate the segue. You know, it's like when 50 Cent won, uh, lost all that weight for the AIDS movie. No one gave a shit. That's true. Yeah. 50 Cent? He was almost unrecognisable. Okay, so all right, I think we'll give it to Jason Priestley with a special uh, tip of the hat to Dennis Quaid. Poor guy. All right, the winner, winner, chicken dinner award. Who came out on top in each of these movies, either in front or or behind the camera? And was it their career high? Gabe, starting with Tombstone. Val Kilmer. All right, Sam? Val Kilmer. How about Wyatt Earp? Any nominees? Who won Wyatt Earp? Um, maybe Wyatt Earp won Wyatt Earp. Oh, the estate of Wyatt Earp just cashing in on the merchandise? Yeah, sure. Do you think they got paid? No, definitely not. Um, I, I, you got anyone, Ben? No, no one jumps. I thought Joanna Going did a really good job playing Josie. Like, Jeez, another one for Joanna Going from Ben. What are you, yeah. over money? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I think we'll agree then that Val Kilmer gets a tombstone. All right, best dialogue award. What's your favourite quote, guys? Let's start with Tombstone. Take it away, Sam. I know you've been you've been you've been itching to drop some of that uh... champing at the bit. Uh-huh. Oh, Tombstone has some fucking amazing lines, and I couldn't even write them all down. Obviously, there's the the classic. I'm your Huckleberry. And basically, all of Val Kilmer's dialogue could be entered here. But I I liked um, you know right at the start when uh, is it Johnny Ringo says he's quoting the Bible. Revelations. Behold, a pale horse. The man who sat on him was death. And hell followed with him. Say what you want about the Bible, (laughs) but it's got some fucking great quotes in it, doesn't it? Say what you want about the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) It's got some cool shit in it from that that have been in a lot of cool fucking movies. Uh, That's going to be a great quote in itself. Say what you will about the Bible. All right, Gabe. Join join <laughs> Sam's other podcast. Say what you want about the Bible with Sam Haywood. <laughs> <laughs> I also loved. Um, there's a great line from Kurt. I think it's Kurt. I didn't write down who it was, but he says, "I already got a guilty conscience. Might as well have the money too." Good day now. Nice. All right, Gabe. True. Um, make no mistake. It's not revenge he's after. It's a reckoning. Um, I'm with Sam. Anything that Doc Holliday says is great. Um, I'm your Huckleberry. Yeah, when it when when you know when when Ringo says when Johnny Ringo says you must be Doc Holliday, and Val says that's the rumor, and he says you retired too, and he says not me. I'm in my prime. Yeah, very good. You must be Doc Holliday. <coughs> that's the rumor. You retired too. Not me. I'm in my prime. That's fucking so good. All right. Uh, so which winner do we have? I need one. Well, we didn't go through the wide Earp quotes. There's some... Uh... Will there be any? I was jumping ahead thinking, <laughs> how many good, good ones can there actually be? Well, nowhere near as good as... Um... Tombstone. Even like like the there's the showdown at the railway station where Kurt has his great line, "Hell's coming with me." And hell's coming with me, you hear? But you know, in in what up? All fucking Kurt says is yes. Sorry, Kevin says is yes. It's it's he doesn't have the lines, but there is one from Gene Hackman to Wyatt when he's in the jail cell for stealing horses, and he says to him, "Do you think you're the first man to lose someone? That's what life is all about." Loss. 
we don't use it as an excuse to destroy ourselves. We go on. All of us. Nice. That was a powerful line for me, and Gene fucking nails it. Gabe? Yeah, I mean... I think there's some actually reasonably nice lines in Wyatt Earp. They just don't compare to the all-star barnstorming bullshit dialogue that fucking absolutely destroys in Tombstone. So, Tombstone. All right, Tombstone gets it. Okay, Tombstone's cleaning up so far. All right, we're up to the... Can I just put one more... Can I put one more line from Wyatt Earp in and I'll... I'll... Yeah. There is one other line from Wyatt Earp when uh, Wyatt says... Mr. Clements, your men respect you, and I don't want to do anything to take away from that. I'm sure you've earned it. So you and your boys are welcome in Dodge City as long as you obey the law. If you don't want to cooperate, I'm going to open you up right now with this shotgun so wide your whole crew's going to see what you had for breakfast. that it won't matter much what happens next will it yeah nice okay <laughs> the nicholas cage chewing the scenery award let's start with sam tombstone val kilmer yeah a lot of chewing gabe i mean powers booth in that i think is doing some mega acting oh as curly bill fucking oath he is a sergio leone villain in this film but he 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 goes just ham enough and not too ham he's fucking great come on ben you must have enjoyed powers booth performance in Tombstone. Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed that. Um, interestingly enough, this nominee in White Earp, uh, Dennis Quaid, I mean, he's almost out-chewing Val Kilmer in the same role. There's clearly something to be had there with the character of someone called Doc and that whole Southern accent thing going on. So I, I for me, it's those two going toe-to-toe. Mm, fair. So it's a, it's a Doc-off. Knock your Doc-off. Any nominees from White Earp? Uh well, no. Well, I think I think yeah. Certainly, Dennis Quaid is the nominee for uh, Wider, but he falls short. All right, Val Kilmer gets it again. Whoa, Val! <laughs> this is peak Val. This is peak Val. I reckon. Yeah, this it is, is. It is. This is his peak for sure. Yep. All right, moving on. The taking a paycheck award speaks for itself. I'll start uh, with Wider. I'm going to say it's got to be Gene Hackman, right? Three scenes, one undone. But I think he's his he, the efforts there. I feel like a, I sound like a real Gene Hackman fanboy, don't I? But yes, that's true. To be fair, you're right. The effort in his performance is there. Yeah, he's getting a paycheck, but he's putting the effort still. Okay, fair enough. Any nominees from you guys? Charlton Heston. I actually can't even recall him being in the movie, so I didn't recognise him at all. He's in Tombstone at the end when so. There's the montage when they just start killing heaps of the cowboys. Um, and uh, who is it? Who's the guy that comes in f- into it? Uh, he's in, um, sorry, Tombstone. Oh, the guy from, he plays Yondu in Guardians of the Galaxy. Michael Rooker. Michael Rooker. We got to talk about Michael Rooker at some point. He's so good. Oh, of course. Yeah, so he, he comes into it and- like that's the hey look it's that guy I think he should win that award if it, it, retrospectively if we've already done it but he he's fucking great um, but then they they're kind of hiding out outside of town in a in a hut and Charlton Heston's the old guy there he's only in like one or two scenes but he surely he's taking a paycheck and it's kind of similar to the Sean Connery in Prince of Thieves appearance 
It's true. As the indelibly named Hut Roofman. Well, now I need a winner, so who's it going to be? What's the award again? <laughs> Taking, Taking a, a paycheck. paycheck. I think I'm, I, I want to give it to Charlton because I don't think the effort was there with him. He was forgettable because Ben's forgotten him. And Gene, Gene you know, he pro- I'm sure he got banked, but, uh, yeah, his, his performance is worthy. Okay. All right. Now, we'll have a few nominees here. The Stephen Tobolowsky Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy, named after the iconic actor who appeared as Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. Well, Gabe, this time it's over to you. Which actor triggered Hades that guy when he appeared on screen starting with Tombstone? We have a bit of a problem here with this award because there's so many that it's so easy to fall down a rabbit hole of talking about them too much. Yeah. I'll just just whip through a bunch. Billy Bob Thornton, as we talked about, turns up early and he's fat. That's funny. Paul Ben Victor is in it. He's uh, pretty memorable. You'd recognise his face. Jason Priestley. Uh, Billy Zane, Michael Rooker, as we just discussed, John Corbett, you know, turns up, Terry O'Quinn, as you've said, Frank Stallone is in Tombstone. Um, uh, who else? Paula Malcolmson. Um, you'd recognise her from, she was in Deadwood too, I think. Um, Robert John Burke, who was Robocop 3. Is this too, like, niche for you, Ben? Uh, yeah, it's a laundry list. Keep going. Ro- Robert John Burke played Robocop in Robocop 3. That's why I mentioned him. Wow, okay. Keep going. Um yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, who else turns up in it? Um, I mean, I, I was like, hey, it's look at that guy when I saw Sam Elliott. I'm like, oh, hey, look, it's it's Sam Elliott. Yeah, right. you gotta, you got to play fourth dimensional chess, dude, and, and be picking Robocops out of this uh, <laughs> lineup. Uh, what about- In Wyatt Earp. Uh, what about in Wyatt Earp? In Wyatt Earp, I had, I had Jim Caviezel. I was like, Jesus Christ, it's Jim Caviezel. And then- um, I also had James Gammon, who who I was like, oh look, it's the coach from Major League. <laughs> That's yes. a deep cut. Okay. Uh, what about Jeff Jeff Fay? Jeff Fay, who's he again? He plays Ike Clanton. He plays in Ike Clanton. Are we, not, are we not Jeff Fay uh, fans on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Not as much as you are. I yeah. Look at his <laughs> photograph here. I don't quite recognise him like you do. What's he most famous for besides this movie? Lawnmower Man. And. I mean, it's sort of insulting that you need an and after being a lead in Lawnmower Man as if that is not good enough. Um, oh. uh, he's in tons and tons of like kind of sh- straight to straight to video uh, 90s movies. He's in Machete. Um, yeah, he's in Machete. Um, but he's very, very memorable, um, very memorable an actor. Um, All right, we've got to choose one. Catherine O'Hara is in Wider. So I had Catherine O'Hara I mean, hates that gal. Can we, can, we give it, can we give it to Michael Rooker, please? Because I think I really like him. I think he's great. He was in fucking Morats. He played the dad in Morats. Give it to him. Tom Sizemore in Wider. Rex Lynn. I mean, Rex Lynn is uh, definitely oh, one of those Sizemore. hates that guy guys. Adam yeah, Baldwin. He has some toxic uh, Twitter politics these days. Pretty much that's all he's famous for nowadays. But, you know, rolled up in that. All right, you've got to choose one. You've got to choose one. Rooker. Martin Cove. Ah. Oh. Rooker, Cove. All right, we'll split it. You're the tiebreaker, Ben. Uh, I would have said Martin Cove, but I don't <laughs> think he's been, in, he hasn't been in enough. So I'm going to say Michael Rooker. Ah. You guys are tough. You guys are tough. All right, let's go to the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Uh, Sam, starting with you, Tombstone. Uh I was going to, like, I mean, and it doesn't matter how often they're cast. He's not cast often enough. Is Sam Elliott. 
Yeah, I, him as well. I agree. I just think he has so much presence on screen. He's great. He's always believable as the character. I just love his voice. It just he can he melt chocolate with it. He's often the second, like the the friend or the other guy, the other like he's not often the lead per se, but I reckon he could be in a lead in a Western series on on Netflix quite easily. Easily, easily. Gabe, how about you? Not cast enough. Hmm. Uh, Frank Stallone. <laughs> Frank Stallone. Who's he? He plays Ed Bailey in Tombstone. Ah, okay, nice choice. All right. Uh, uh, is it though? Well, do you feel so strongly for Frank that you'll overrule Sam Elliott? No, I don't feel strongly for Frank at all. I just feel like we 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 named a big list, and I was just looking for new fresh names. Probably could have chosen an actress. We haven't really mentioned any of them in either of these movies, but Catherine O'Hara we did for the Stephen Tobolowsky Award. But I agree. No one's jumped out really. But also these films I mean, often set in a, in a world where most of the characters tend to be men. And that's probably where both of the films age the least is in the writing of the female characters. 100%. Mm-hmm. What year did uh, Drew Barrymore's Bad Girls come out? <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, what about the one? Wasn't there one with Salma Hayek and Penelope Cruz? Oh, yes, of course. Yes, that one. That would be like Bad Girls as well. Uh, I mean, technically, Bad Girls came out in 1994, so it could be the the third twin in this just by fact of that it's a Western and we, we could mention it like like I am now. Okay, let's put down Sam Elliott and let's put a bow on it and move on. The Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Uh, Sam. I had incredibly disrespectfully for this award. I had Powers Booth as his real name, or yeah, as yeah. Curly Bill. No, as his real name. So did I. So did I. <laughs> I did as well. Ah, uh, you guys, shut your noise. Powers Booth is a great name. It's like Max Power. Snap. How about <laughs> White Earth? You don't snuggle with Powers Booth. You strap yourself in and feel the G's. <laughs> <laughs> How about White Earp? Yeah, that's a stupid name. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Powers Booth gets it. Awesome. All right, the Memento Award, name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatch these movies. Uh, Gabe, over to you this time, starting with Tombstone. Oh, well, I never forget it because it's unforgettable, but I always forget, as I mentioned before, Jason Priestley's Sojourn. <laughs> I agree. Uh, Sam? Yeah, I forgot Jason Priestley and also Billy Zane was in this film. Billy Zane got great hair in it too. Oh. All right, let's give it to Priestley. Uh, now, the Die Hard Award. Did either of these films inspire a uh, legacy of clones in any sort? No. No. Gabe. No, there's All been right. lots of White Earp movies and Doc Holliday movies. They they are a clone. They are a clone. You can't inspire clones if you're the clone yourself. Yeah, totally. Ooh. All right. Interesting. It's come that time of the podcast, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway <laughs> Okay, it's come that time of the podcast, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. So imagine this, Sam and Gabe. We've got an opportunity to make a sequel to Tombstone and White Earp. They're both autobiographies or biographies about the legendary old West lawman, White Earp. First of all... Starting with you, Sam, which film do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to a studio executive to make it? Go. 
Well, I think um, I'm not exactly what sure the film could be, but I do think that the sequel has to be to Tombstone, which was more successful financially. But also, Wider has this real kind of wrapping it up ending where he's old and the kid comes and says, hey, you wide up, and he's with his missus in there, you know. Um, and Tombstone just feels a lot more immediate. Like I said before, Tombstone's about a moment of a person and White Earp's about the person. So we can make a sequel to Tombstone about the next moment or perhaps generations later um, the Earp descendants have to return to the town of Tombstone to settle some unfinished business. Gabe, what do you think? About the generations later of Earps returning to Tombstone to settle some unfinished business behind the rebuilt OK Corral. I mean, it's a way we could go. Yeah. For sure, for sure. I mean, looking at the history of Wyatt Earp himself, nothing nearly as interesting as the shootout at the OK Corral happened to him. I mean, I think he went and to California, down California way and did some mining and stuff. I'm not so sure he even killed anyone else after that. So, I mean, the story has peaked, has it not? We need to find new ways to... to What's a fictionalised version? What if you had, say, a modern Western set in the sort of vein of No Country for Old Men, right? And it could be basically a sequel to either film, but you choose Tombstone because that one was better reviewed, more popular, made more money. And perhaps, say, we bring back someone like Kurt Russell as a descendant, right? I love it. I love it. And so you, you set it now with cars and TVs and phones and a bit like we talked about how with Robin Hood you could have like say a modern version called Hood that's sort of like set in an impoverished neighbourhood or something and same sort of principle. We have basically a good man who goes bad. Perhaps say he can't make his mortgage repayments, he's unsacked unfairly from his job. I always think of that guy, who's the guy that played the president later on in a TV show who's in heat and he's the cook and also the will man. What's his name again, that particular actor? And he just can't get a break. And he's the, and the guy is just giving him grief when he's trying to like cook on his parole in this new job. And everything just seems to be unfair. And so he decides to go back to doing that one last heist with De Niro. So Mike Kelty Williamson's character. Yeah, exactly. I'm thinking of something like that. Imagine Kurt Russell playing a descendant. A bit like some of those people like Jesse James, the car mechanic who runs that TV show with motorbikes and whatever, who always tries to ch- trade off the legacy of his ancestor. We've got this guy, though. He's just a good man who goes wrong. And essentially we have like a Western, like an Assault Precinct 13-style Western set in a small country town with the vibe of No Country for Old Men. What do you think? Or, or even or even Clint Eastwood's recent film, The Mule, um, like it, Kurt, Kurt could play a descendant similar to that morally ambiguous character um, where, you know, he, he needs some money for one reason or another and decides to, you know, go back to Tombstone or whatever. To Maybe there's a legend of, if we're going to lean into the legend and not the reality, maybe there's a legend that there was one heist the Cowboys pulled off and it was millions of dollars worth of silver coins or something and they buried it somewhere secret uh, and, and it, Wyatt, even though he was the... Uh, altruistic lawman knew about where it was after he killed the cowboys and marked it in his will or something and his descendant has to go back to tombstone to find the treasure and then when he goes back to tombstone there's a corrupt sheriff or and some gangsters or something and and uh take it from there 
All right, Gabe, over to you. Build on it or throw it out and start again? Um, uh, I mean, yeah, I look, if you're going for a, a modern set one, uh, maybe I'm over here going to make a a, a, a a slow Western just about the 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 degradation and sadness that uh, permeated the last few days of Doc Holliday's life as a as a drunk and a gambler, you know, kind of like... <laughs> Jesus. Kind of like a, 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 a leaving Las Vegas but uh, set in... Uh, you know, the oldie times. What do you lean in harder, Gabe? Maybe he sort of like has a paralyzing heart attack towards the very end with his tuberculosis <laughs> and yeah. he comes like the, di- the diving bell and the butterfly. Oh, yeah. Now we're talking. And <laughs> 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 we can bring Val back. All right. I think it's pretty fair to say that the studio executive is looking at all three of us going, my God, you guys, this is fucked. I need something. <laughs> wow, you guys didn't practice your pitch before you came in here at all, did you? But I like that you, you brought options. <laughs> do, do, do you guys always do this? Uh, <laughs> nice. All right. This is the last chance to throw a Hail Mary to try and score this writing gig. Is there anything else you've got deep in those pockets to throw out on the table? What? I guess not. And that, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> is how you try and make a sequel but can't to the Incredible Westerns, Tombstone or White Earp. Is that our first complete failure, Ben? I mean, we've pitched them some pretty wacky ideas uh, along the ways, as is our wills. But is this the first one that has sort of ended with a something of a damp squib? Yeah, I think so. This is like the first time we've walked out with a tail between our legs and delivered nothing. Ah, uh, yes, very good. Sam, we blame you on this one. <laughs> no, no, no. I had a, I had a great idea. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Fair. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, okay, that brings us <laughs> to the end of the show. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor and guest host today, Sam Haywood, for making this episode hopefully sound so good in the future. Sam, where can folks find you? Uh, on Instagram, uh, at Showtown Sound, or on IMDb. And Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? At Twitter. No, I did that. I always fuck that up. I'm I'm on Twitter. I'm on, I'm down there on Twitter. At Gabe Dowrick. Yep. Tw- yep. Twitter. And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Insta and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. You find this pod and all the rest in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening, folks. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it with your mates. Give us a shout out. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Battles very soon. Adios, Gabe. Adios, Sam. Adios. Bye. Amigo. Amigo.